being in the middle of change, it always feels like a new experience and and uh, threatening. Uh, and uh, and yet, if you look back at basically every generation of Christians back, we've all been through into a greater or lesser degree, you know, than we realize sometimes. So I guess we might as well get used to it. Welcome to season three of Create in Me. We're glad you joined us for these curious conversations about worship about how we shape it and how we are shaped by it. Well, hello, Create Me listeners. This is Brian Dixon and Rebecca Craver, and you're listening to Create Me, our, uh, our podcast conversations uh, about worship, digging a little deeper into that. So we're very excited uh, to have as our guest today, uh, the Reverend Daniel Cruz. And um, so we'll have a little bit of an introduction of uh, Brother Cruz, and then we'll we'll jump right into it together. All right. Um, Daniel Cruz was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and is the retired archivist for the Moravian Church of the Southern Province. He holds two doctoral degrees, one in English and one in historical theology. He is a translator of um, Czech and has written many uh, booklets and books in his work uh, about Moravian history and uh, to share all kinds of information about the Moravian Church over time. Um, so we're delighted to have him with us, especially as we explore how historically changes in society and culture have affected the ways in which we worship, um, and especially the ways that history has changed and shaped the Moravian tradition um, that we are all a part of. Thank you. I'm glad to, to be here. I'll, I thought we might as well pick a place and start in pre-Moravian. I was thinking about the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, which forced uh, quite a change in traditional Jewish worship. With the destruction of the temple, the old priestly and sacrificial system simply couldn't be. And uh, that partly explains why the... Uh, the rabbinic form of Judaism that we are most familiar with today, uh, sort of one by default. Uh, the Pharisees, you know, could continue doing what they did. However, uh, the priestly system, the, there were still priests around, but they had no temple to priest in. Uh, and so uh, that put uh, quite a change in, in Jewish worship which had already begun somewhat with the diaspora, but uh, following the destruction of the temple, that was just about the only option there was. And then when we think about Christianity, which was small and uh, from time to time persecuted in the first centuries, with the coming of Constantine and making Christianity a, a favored religion, it made... Uh, well, again, an enormous thing. I mean, one for the Christians who were used to, if not being actively persecuted, at least there was the possibility of it. And with Diocletian not long before, they certainly had had uh, a hard time of it. I was listening to a great courses presentation and uh, from a couple of good professors, and, and they they sort of put it this way, um, one month 
you're persecuted. And so, you know, the somebody knocks at the door, it's the centurion, and he says, uh, we have a three o'clock vacancy and the feeding of the lions. Go back in, say goodbye to your wife and family and come with me. And then, you know, a month later, suddenly it's the door sounds and the centurion is there and said, good afternoon, sir. Sorry to disturb you. Uh, the emperor wants good, hardworking, honest Christians involved in his administration. Uh, so we have a mid-level management position in the imperial treasury. Uh, it's yours if you want it. Show up nine o'clock Monday. I mean, and this was like almost overnight. And as far as the worship goes, uh, of course, there were no formal Christian for this, the house churches. And so again, one week, the ministers there uh, celebrating uh, Holy Communion on uh, Flavia's, uh, you know, card table in her living room. And the next, the uh, imperial officials are saying, okay, here's, here's a basilica we're not needing. Uh, this is now your church. And suddenly you've got this huge space to fill and more people and openly. Well, you know, how do you do that? Uh, Flavia's card table is not going to do for the altar here. So immediately you've got to get a bit more formal. Uh, these people are used to having their priest, you know, dressed up. So you, okay, well, I guess we ought to get some vestments. And, uh, oh, yeah, we organized processions and all of that. So it was just complete changes uh, and sudden changes are not unusual in the history of Christianity. And then, of course, you know, you get up towards the Reformation age. Well, let's just start with the Hussites. I mean, okay, some of them, the uh, Euphroquists sort of thought, okay, well, we'll just change a little bit of the ritual others and particularly the groups that uh, founded the ancient unity you know wanted to be more radical than that and but the question is okay so what do we do and so over a period of a few decades they gradually um you know developed forms of worship which were much simpler than what had been done but Still, it just took a while to figure out, okay, how do we do this? The larger Reformation, uh, and by the way, the Czechs usually call uh, the Czech Reformation, the Hussite Reformation, the first Reformation, mm -hmm. and they call the Lutheran Reformation the second Reformation. Somehow, for some reason, that terminology is not caught on in Germany, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> As you Shocking. can imagine. <laughs> but uh, anyway, there again, you you quickly get the Lutheran and the Calvinist uh, branches where the, the Calvinists really want to purge everything, more or less. Luther is a little more open. In, in Germany, there's a saying about the difference in Saxony and Prussia. Saxony, which is a little more uh, easygoing, uh, they say, well, in Saxony, if it doesn't say you can't, you can. But in Prussia, if it doesn't say you can, you can't. 
And the Calvinists were, you know, if it doesn't in the Bible say you can do this, then you can't do it. Luther was more open and, and said, well, if it doesn't hurt anything, you know, you don't have to, but it's okay uh, to keep more of the medieval usages. And, of course, the Anglican Reformation was that way as well, except for periods when their Calvinist faction came up more. What I'm saying is that from the beginning of Christian uh, history, vast changes in the political and societal situations have meant not constant change, but sometimes pretty radical changes, whether they wanted them or not. So I suppose we shouldn't be surprised in uh, this age we live in, which, you know, sort of accelerates change. I mean, in in the past, you know, a hundred years, you probably hadn't done a whole lot, but a hundred years now, 10 years, uh, it's a different world almost. So, um, you know, I, whether we like it or not, or want to foster it or, you know, restrict, uh, change is going to happen. Our job is to figure out, okay, how to make that change as positive for the ministry of the church. So those are just some initial thoughts that I had on the subject. Yeah, that's great. It's really hopeful, actually, to hear you talk about, you know, the night and day kind of changes that happened. Because um, I think that, you know, with the pandemic, especially all all of us, church leaders, church members, the whole world, really, like, because it came to such a standstill, it's just like, how in the world do we adjust to a change that happens so that's such a drastic change and it happens so quickly. And mm. so it's kind of hopeful to go, Oh, but we have done this before. Right. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Um, yeah. And I think we've done a pretty good job. Uh, you know, of course, many more churches have, have begun live streaming their services. Mm -hmm. uh, so we miss being there in person, but you know, that we're not completely cut off. And in fact, Linda and I have discovered we actually get a lot more church now because uh, I'm a member at Home Church and she's a member at Freedland. And uh, so Home Church service was 10. We'll look at that and then we'd switch over and do Freedland at 11. Uh, so in some ways, uh, we are actually having more opportunities to experience worship in different settings than we had before of course the not being able to personally interact is is a real challenge and and a detriment but in other ways we seem to be adapting uh at least for now better than i thought we would i i feel like one of the things that's lacking and this is from you know the perspective of someone who became a christian kind of later in life so mm -hmm. I, I don't have a lot of church in in my upbringing but I'm wondering if we are lacking a theology of change. Yes, our churches are under, you know, a great deal of stress. Our, our, not just our churches in an abstract sense, but our, our individual parishioners uh, mm -hmm. are, are feeling isolated, disconnected from the thing that gives a sense of coherence, a sense of community. And I think pastorally, that, that's just a grave concern of, of many of ours. You know, how, how do we not substitute or come up with, um, you know, an alternative means of community and connection. But I think as Rebecca and I have a very keen interest in specifically worship, I I'm just surprised sometimes at what I see as a lack of 
capacity within the church writ large to um to change yeah and, and that's kind of an old joke you know oh we've never done it that way before how many moravians does it take to change a light bulb change I, but at the same time the biblical history is absolutely and church history is a history of change of of seismic shifts and change and so i'm wondering if that's an area for us to kind of like we're hoping to do with these conversations and this podcast is to look at change, not only that we've survived, but change that has had a clarifying fortifying effect where we we've, we've been able to, to realize what things, you know, were, were non-essential, so to speak, <laughs> what things were ministerials and, and what really is it essentially uh, what brought us together, what joined at our hearts, you know, and that's, so to me, it's very encouraging, as you say, Rebecca, and, and to hear you, Daniel, talk about, yeah, this is nothing new to the church. The changes seem to me, as I heard you speaking, they, they, they came from many different sources, you know, imperial expansion, domestic policy, ecclesial reformation, social movements. So yeah, I think the changes come from a lot of different quarters, but I, I'm wondering what, what kind of the, um, the touchstones, the, the where is it that the church has really kind of drawn its strength uh, to be able to, um, to change, to transform, to grow, to develop? Well, within the Moravian church, of course, we make all of these jokes about never changing, but mm -hmm. we have constantly changed. Yeah. Going back, think of what you did in worship on the last Sunday you were able to have worship mm -hmm. uh, together and then think, okay, uh, if somebody from 1727 Hirnhut was suddenly brought as a visitor to your congregation, would they recognize it? Mm. Or would you, we recognize what they were doing back then? I think we can see a growing development, a, a really basic commitment to Christ and to each other uh, and trusting in the leadership, Christ and the spirit. Uh, and uh, others within the community, we have altered things quite, quite a bit. Even here in Hoot, our since we were worshiping originally in the Lutheran church, that sort of took care of the formal service. But then uh, within our own communities, things like the Zingstunde developed, where it's just a song service. Mm. Uh, and that became really our most characteristic form. And uh, and then when you come, okay, we're we're going to celebrate love feast. Well, what is a love feast but a Zingstunde with bun and coffee, or mm -hmm. tea and crumpets, or you know beer and salami sandwich, whatever uh, happens to be in whatever area. But you know that. And then think of our our Holy Communion service. That is really a Zingstunde with uh, bread and wine, the sacrament included mm -hmm. and uh, we often don't think of that but uh, that's what what really developed and uh, particularly in America we had the language change to deal with mm -hmm. uh, here in the southern province we we always had some English services for those outside but of course in our own community German remained uh, strong well into the 19th century but by the mid 19th century i i was sort of abused in reading some pec minutes that they decided to send out to the congregations that uh 
English services should probably become the norm now. Uh, and one congregation, I won't say which one, uh, wrote back angrily, we prefer to maintain the German language as our fathers from time immemorial have done. Well, the congregation was only 10 years old, but, you know, we've always done it this way. Wow. And, uh, you know, in places... Uh, I, I think the last German communion at home church was like 1884, which was attended by three elderly sisters. But, you know, it, it lasted that long. But in other places, the change was more accelerated. Of course, our Hope congregation, which was English speaking from the beginning, didn't have that problem, though, oddly enough, they had trouble finding ministers for hope because they didn't have Moravian ministers who could speak English very well. Mm. And indeed the hope diary uh, in the early years is written in German because that's where the minister was more comfortable. Uh, today you'd have a hard time finding Moravian ministers who could speak German enough to serve a congregation. Uh, so a lot of these things uh, that we think, well, we haven't changed, but really they're they're quite different. Yeah. You know, our our music, for one thing, we are much more open now to uh, things other than 18th century chorales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I'm not always happy with that, but you know, <laughs> it's it's what happens. But when I was young in the pastorate, uh, gospel hymns is what people wanted to sing, and uh, you know, there was pressure on, don't sing that old dry stuff. Let's get some some good stuff going. And yet, uh, in some places, that didn't, didn't catch on. I, I remember growing up at Emmanuel, uh, and we sang Rock of Ages, and we sang, you know, uh, you know, Amazing Grace, but we didn't use the common tunes for it. Uh, in fact, I I grew up thinking that the tune from Rock of Ages was Graysome, which is, we usually sing Jesus Master, whom I serve, oh. or Amazing Grace. We didn't sing it to what everybody knows. Uh, we sang it to Southampton, mm-hmm. which you may know is Alas, with shame I own that oft. Uh, and so when on TV, when we got TV, uh, and, you know, they'd have a church service and they start off with Rock of Ages or Amazing Grace. I said, what is that weird tune they're using? Things eventually gathered yeah, by the 69 hymnal, of course, we were made far greater use of uh, general tunes and all. And, of course, now, I guess gospel music is considered old fashioned stuff and the praise music and and whatever else will come after that uh, seems to be the thing. But again, we forget, well, we've been through this before and uh, somehow we've, we've come out. Um, I remember when we were raising funds for the uh, new archives and music foundation building in Winston-Salem, we applied to some place for a grant. Actually, I think it was a government grant. And one of the questions on it was, what evidence can you offer of institutional stability? 
And we sort of thought for a bit, and I, I put down, well, we outlasted the Holy Roman Empire, and they were trying to kill us. So I guess that's pretty stable. I think we have the capacity. I mean, we obviously have the capacity to change because that's part of being human. But I think the church even has the capacity to change. And I think what Brian and I are interested in are like, what are the tools that have been used over time that have allowed for us to make those changes? And some of them, I think, are practical. Once we didn't have German-speaking pastors anymore, you mm-hmm. couldn't have a German service. And so there probably was some acceptance of the fact that you couldn't have this service because you just did not have the tools to put it into place. Like I know here in Edmonton, I have members now that are in their 80s, but who remember when the German service wasn't the main service anymore, when they made that decision, but there was a small German service that happened every Sunday, you know, the hour before the main worship service. Um, so in their lifetime, this congregation switched. And, and I'm sure that a lot of that was that there just weren't pastors who could, who could officiate in German. Well, um, right. And then as within the church, as successive generations came along, you know, you're in a sea of English speakers. So you have to learn English. You do. And it becomes more and more even in Moravian families, German became more a, a secondary language than the primary language. And it took a few decades for that to happen. But uh, I recall during the, the Civil War, one of our uh, 26 regiment band members uh, wrote delightful letters back home. And he starts off one of them uh, in German, you know, Liebe Mutter. Der haben so yeah, and then he's, he just stops and says, "Oh heck, I can't handle that German no more." So <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's sort of a natural process that is going to happen, and the church's thing is remembering its primary function of sharing together in the love of Christ uh, and proclaiming that. You know, in word and deed, the the church's task is always okay. How do we do that now? Uh, what can what can we keep doing that works? But what aren't we doing? What what isn't uh, working anymore? Or or here's something we hadn't even thought about. How do we deal with that need? Uh, and it's not like the church hasn't always done that. We just have to constantly be reminded yeah that's that's what being the church is that's the question that we can always ask and you know be working to answer mm-hmm. yeah and and we don't always have to get it right the first time you know you you have to try and if it isn't working then okay don't do that anymore but what else can we do to meet this need or that situation you know we forget or We've been so proud of our mission fields, uh, and we forget that a lot of them are defunct because they didn't work. But that didn't mean we stopped being, you know, mission oriented. It just meant, okay, let's try it over here. And, uh, you know, the church doesn't, needs not to be afraid of saying, well, it sounded like a good idea, uh, but uh, it failed. So now what? And there's always a now what we've never we never arrive at full completion. It's always and now what? Yeah, it's interesting, Daniel, that you started with the history 
from the point of the destruction of the second temple. And I do think so much change is often seen in a very negative light. And it is, it is a type of loss. It's a grief. It's the experience of being bereft. Like I dare, I doubt any of us could have convinced Comenius that as he was praying that hidden seed prayer, you know, that you could have put a positive spin on it. Well, just think, just think of the Moravian faith, you know, the traditions, you know, being carried off into the new world and westward and yeah, you know, here's the silver lining. I, I think Comenius was acquainted with grief, you know, and I think change is often precipitated by some sense of loss. And I think the pandemic is a sense that people have of, of loss, of grief, of diminishment. And so, no, I don't think we, we're, we're in the business of, well, how do you look on the bright side? <laughs> you know, here's the silver lining. But I think a theology of, of resurrection is more about change, in my opinion, than we often give it credit for. That, that what we think resurrection is, is the absolute restoration of just everything that you've lost, you're going to get it back. And mm. I think resurrection, as I've been doing some thinking on this, it's the proposition of, of even more being restored to you than you thought you had, and maybe in unrecognizable ways. You know, Mary did not recognize the risen Savior, you know, that, that resurrection isn't just kind of a full refund, that it's, it's, some, it's a new heaven and a new earth. It is change. So mm -hmm. I, I think even embedded within pretty basic Christian doctrine is this, this fundamental issue of transformation change which is a painful process. It is, it is a letting go. It, it gets at our sense of attachment and entitlement. And it's hard as we move forward in trying to create worship and worshipful spaces. Again, as you said, Rebecca, what are some of the practical kind of the practices that when I do feel like we have so many people that are just really missing worship in the ways that we used to be able to do it? That, that's, that's kind of a sticking point for me. Like, yeah, how do we, what, what are the tools? What are the practical kind of things we can attempt and experiment with and try? Even, like you said, Daniel, if we fail, there's grace, you know, and we're, we're, still, we're still moving forward. We're still trying. I'd be interested to hear you talk about what is that? Because um, I hear it on what Brian's saying, the, the balance between grieving the loss but also moving forward into what, what is coming. Like, have you, do you have any thoughts about how the church has been able to, to balance that as a community? Like I think individually we may have some ideas, but um, that's where I struggle. How do communities kind of grieve the loss together, but also embrace the, the potential, you know, like you were saying, like we get more church now, but mm -hmm. we still not the same. What's the community practice that helps us to delve into that? Well, the church always or hasn't always done that very well, but we've kept working at it. And uh, I think what is it's going to take is, as they had in in um, Herdhut around the time of August thirteenth, you you have to realize that there's a lot more that binds us together than separates us, mm. and that we have to work at it together and be open to working together and not just divide into this camp and that camp and we don't even talk to one another. Uh, it, it's going to take a revival of individual spirits, well, a resurrection, a coming to new life for us to be able as a church uh, to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And uh, I don't think we're there yet. 
but hopefully we are crawling towards that. And this recent pandemic, I think, has maybe, you know, accelerated our, or at least it has enhanced our realization that, okay, we're going to have to come together and work this out uh, with one another. And of course, in general society, unfortunately, the, um, the trend is the opposite towards division and enmity. And if the church falls into that trap, well, it's not going to be good. We believe it's Christ's church, so somehow or other, it's not going to come to that, but, but we may have some rough patches here and there uh, on the way. One of the questions that's come up uh, as we've been hearing from other clergy is, is as you said, the Zingstun, there being a, a, a characteristic Moravian liturgical form, and so much of our theology is, is, is developed and reinforced and transmitted that way. If singing is something that we're not able to safely do because of transmission of the virus, what are your thoughts, Daniel, on might the church be challenged in the near future to, to develop, well, what are some other ways we can, can live our theology? You know, is there an alternative? You know, will, will that be an adaptation or what ap- adaptations do you think might be within our reach? Frankly, I haven't a clue. <laughs> uh, if I did, I'd bottle it and sell it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think this not being able to sing in church is going to be a permanent thing, but mm-hmm. how long it's going to last, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're, you're talking really serious Moravian grief on that or yeah. the band tradition as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can social, socially distance tubas only so far, you know, that, that's a tough one. And it's one that, that strikes most directly at us as Moravians because music, uh, singing, uh, bands, all of that is so much a part of who we, who we are and the way we have traditionally uh, expressed our theology. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I remember when we were having the dialogue with the Lutherans about uh, full communion, an issue would come up and they would all immediately start thumbing through the uh, Book of Concord to find the answer. And, and finally, they got irritated with us because they said, well, every time we try to come up with a theological issue, you Moravians either sing a hymn or tell a story. That's the way we do theology. Yeah. Uh, and uh, congregational expressions of that in the hymn singing, much, much more threatening to Moravians, I think, not to be able to, uh, to have the music as we have known it or whatever it is in the way of developing, you know, because that's who we are. Just going back to that, you know, we tell stories or sing hymns. I do think sometimes when we can't do it exactly like we would have done, we go, well, we just can't do it. But I don't think that's always the case. You know, um, we can still tell stories. Mm-hmm. We can still sing hymns, just not with everybody in the room. It's, it's hard. I mean, I, I miss hearing lots of people singing together. And I'm not even a musical person, but I grew up in a church where that was part of what shaped who I became. 
Um, and so not to be able to sit in a room and hear all of these different people singing, um, you know, in four part harmony, there is a great loss there. But do we hear the hymns better? Like, are we listening to the words? Is there a way that this is helping us to clarify our own understanding? Because there's a lack of noise, you know, because our world has been so loud. And I think that, you know, the pandemic has in many ways um, kind of separated us out, but I think has actually given us some clarity about like, you know, what is it that we really miss? And what are the things in our practice of church that like have not come up? You know, Mm -hmm. nobody's asked me about this. And it's like, okay, well, maybe that wasn't, that wasn't as important to our spiritual development, but here are the things that are really coming to the surface. You know, I just can't remember the last time we did this and I long for it. Cause I think sometimes it's about the questions that we ask. Why can't it go back to the way it was? And it's like, well, that question doesn't actually get you anywhere most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it can't go back to, to the way it was. But what if you say like, how do we, bring forward those things that are meaningful and necessary, as you said, for this primary function of sharing together in the love of Christ, what is needed to do that? To me, that's exciting, although it is, it is overwhelming because it's a huge prospect. Like, how do we do that now in a world that we're just starting to figure out? The invitations are multiple and I think we'll figure it out, but together, like, I don't, I don't think any one person is just going to be inspired and say, okay, Moravian Church, this is what we're going to do. There's going to be different things that are happening and we're going to come together and be like, oh, oh, wow, you're doing that. That's really great. Look what I'm, you know, like what we figured out here. And I think that that will kind of bring us forward, you know, that it's not about, I don't know, dictating the, the answer, but about kind of coming to the realization that this is what's bubbling up and the places of resonance, I think, is where I see the spirit sort of connecting us and saying, yeah. Here are the harmonies that are coming together. Hmm. At least I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the word that keeps coming up, right, is, is hope. And, and I think there is much in the news and there's much about the situation we're discussing that is distressing. But I, I think to have also a theology of hope, I look to the hills from whence does my help come and, and, and in what is my hope? And to just approach this challenge, the challenge of this moment with a, a hopefulness, you know, a deep, a deep hope, not wishful thinking, but, but an actual commitment to, you know, whatever it is that is the opposite of fear, you know, a, a hopeful, faithful engagement. And, and it seems to me sometimes, too, that as the church has come out on the other side of some of these, these sweeping changes, it has also made the church, it has also made the message of the gospel accessible, available to people that it wasn't previously you know, there's been something of that, too, that it has kind of broken open the church a little bit and and engaged people who just weren't connected with the way the church was operating prior to that change. Yeah, it's it's hard to be wise in the middle of the process. It's easier, much easier to analyze what they did right in, in the 18th century than it is to figure out, OK, 25 years from now, what's the church going to look like? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, you're right, that that hope is is what we have to hold on to. Again, not wishful thinking, 
I actually enjoyed 1957 and wouldn't mind doing it again. Uh, but we don't have that option. But I think that, you know, hope is not something that we somehow generate it mm. like all the rest of grace. It is, it is something that is given us by God. And so I think we actually, you know, might turn our attention more to what is the basis of our hope? Uh, do we really trust God to bring us through this? And, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you, you mentioned Comenius and the hidden seed prayer. Well, I mean, you know, think where he was at that time. It's over. You know, there is no more Moravian church. Yeah. Uh, but who could have imagined that there would still be Moravians sitting around here in 2020 uh, discussing, okay, what's next? Wow. Because for him, there was no next. Mm -hmm. you know, but he just sort of hung on by his fingernails and you know, kept what little vestige that he could alive, hoping, but without any idea of what that hope was going to result in. Uh, and I guess we're, well, we're not quite to the extreme that, uh, they were in the, you know, 1620s, but things do look pretty grim. Uh, and so maybe, you know, we, we talk a lot about our, our faith and, and our love, but, uh, maybe we ought to do some more thinking and praying and being open to hope. You talked about, you know, in, in Harrenhut, they were supremely divided. You know, like they really had not figured out how to do this together at all. Um, and they spent a lot of time talking to God and saying, we don't know how to do this. Yeah. Help well, us. That's you know? what we, yeah, with the August 13th experience, mm -hmm. what, we, what we often forget is we think they, you know, all bickering and they're there in church and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit with or without doves and flames, you know, descends upon them and all at once everything's changed. But there was a lot that went into to preparing the ground for that. I mean, the, what we used to call the brotherly agreement in May before that in August that uh, Zinzendorf, well, in a sense, as the Lord of the manor said, look, if you're going to live here, these are the ways you have to treat one another. So, you know, either that or get out of town. And then, you know, he encouraged those prayer groups and, and uh, Bible studies all of that, that summer so that the results may not have been immediately apparent, but, but certainly it was tilling the ground for that great experience. Uh, but they didn't get there just by saying, oh, well, it'll be better tomorrow. They worked at it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think we're going to have to work at it. Our hope in God is that he'll bring us through just like he's always done. And once again, we'll outlast the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, that's a big hope. But I love that it, it feels maybe not the hope is not attainable, like if, that I can't just decide I'm going to grab a hold of it. There are things that we can do which for me helps a lot, you know, to say like, okay, I can, I can pray or I can bring together a group of people and say like, let's just really pray about what are we going to do here? Cause I, I think sometimes we feel so bereft, like there's nothing we can do with this thing that has happened to us for the hope 
it is, it is that there are things that, that we can do, you know, that we have over the last 2000 years learned that when we go to God in prayer, we often find that there is a way we hadn't imagined to move forward, even in the midst of what seems like ultimate loss, Comenius was able to keep moving forward, even though he didn't know where he was going, mm-hmm. you know, but he knew he wasn't alone. Those practices are so easy for me to just sort of be like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, prayer. Oh yeah, sure. These things. But I think that those are the stabilizing things that always help us on the way here in this conversation and here like, you know, like we, we have done this and Jesus was clear that do this in remembrance of me. There is something important about like the basic ordinary meals that we share being places where we remember that there is more in this bread that brings life to us. You know, I mean, I think this is kind of a beautiful thing Um, as we talk about looking, looking back and learning from the past. Some of it may be like, how did they, how did they hold themselves together in community and in love with everything else going wrong? And it, and it isn't by doing these grand gestures or this huge worship service with all the bells and whistles, right? Like it's the much more regular, ordinary practices of faith that, that seem to sustain communities in difficult times. Right. Well, and, and as we said near the beginning, you know, we, we think church and building organization and, you know, big services and all, but uh, for the first 300 years of its existence, the Christian church had none of that. And yet they survived and grew. I don't want to do without churches and big congregations and worship services and all that. But Christianity for 300 years was a few of you, you know, sort of sneaking into Flavia's living room and sharing in communion or Bible Mm -hmm. reading or whatever. You know, that's 300 years of that. And yet the church survived. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had six months of sort of that. And we think, oh, Lord, it's all over. Uh, We have to remember that, you know, the Christian church didn't survive by having a Gothic cathedral. There are ways, and again, we just have to work at figuring this out. And as we've said before, you know, together, because nobody is smart enough to figure all this out. That's going to work everywhere. And that's another thing is that the church is diverse and what's going to work in one way won't work somewhere else. And we, we shouldn't expect it to, you know, we just got to keep plugging away at it, you know, <laughs> say, okay, God, it's up to you in the long run, but you know, we could use a little help here. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at create and we worship. If you have questions, thoughts, or ideas you'd like to share with us, email us at moraviancreateandme at gmail.com. A special thanks to David Melby Gibbons, Rachel Marie, and John Robinson for our theme music. Check them out at Dust of the Saints on Facebook and rachelmarie.com. As always, keep on creating.